If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, uh, we'll be in verses 19 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with this morning. It's that God's redemption is accomplished in Christ alone according to his boundless love alone. Let me say that again. God's redemption is accomplished in Christ alone according to his boundless love alone. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans 9, 19 through 26. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, uh, let me ask you, um, what impact does your understanding of something have on whether or not it is true? Doesn't. And yet, how often do we say, well, if I can't understand it, it Let's just say the word predestination. If I can't understand predestination, then I'm not going to trust God. If I can't understand how election works, who's in, who's out, then I am not going to worship or submit to or repent to a God that I don't believe ultimately is good. Is that, a, is that a good process for us to say of the mystery of redemption and salvation that comes from eternity past and extends into eternity future? In fact, those terms are misused there, but for our human ears, that, that if we can't understand that, if he doesn't reveal to us who's in and who's out, then I'm out in some form or fashion. Maybe I withhold just a little bit of my worship. Maybe I withhold some of my obedience. Is that wise? Not at all. That would be very unwise. And yet, you need to recognize that that sometimes is our tendency, is that we put God in the dock. Because we want to know more than what we are prepared to know. We want to know and, and, and suggest that obedience should be justified by his revelation to us. Is that the way that works? Well, see, this is kind of the situation. Remember that this is a church that's divided, and it's divided across racial lines in many respects, the Jews and the Gentiles, and each of them thinks they deserve more of God's love and favor and are struggling to serve each other, which means what missionally? 
When a church is divided against itself and it's got infighting going on, how missional is that church going to be? It's not. Because all of the effort and energy goes into the infighting, right? And, and, all, and if somebody did come in and, and sat next to the, the, the people who are, are grumbling, who are frustrated, who are upset, right? Are they going to come back? Are they going to stick around and stay? Or is that a church that's going to serve its hurting well? Serve the suffering well. No, all of the effort and the energy is kind of getting sucked up. That's what's happening to the Roman church. This church that had beautifully uh, been a display of the glory of God in its early days. Remember, out of Pentecost, a number of Gentiles are redeemed. The Jews were excited to be Christians. It was new to them. They, they went out and they shared the gospel with Gentiles, which is, which is one of the great mysteries, according to Paul, that, that God would unite uh, all tongues, tribes, and nation, nations in worship, something we should still kind of long for and hope for pictures of, right? And, and, and so they were excited, and, and the gospel was moving people to come into the kingdom. And then they hit maintenance phase. They started trying to protect what they had. And then, you know, some things happen where the Jews get kicked out for a season in God's providence, for God's purpose. Can, could they have trusted God? with what he was doing. And then they come back. Now, could the Gentiles trust what God was doing in bringing the Jews back? Are they willing to submit and say, Lord, this is, this is your hand and the purpose of this is to, to grow the family bigger in some way, shape, or form? And we, like Habakkuk, which is interesting that Paul quotes Habakkuk too at the very beginning of Romans, we will stand our watch waiting for you because the just will live by faith. And so what Paul's trying to do here is to return them to their missional purpose. And don't forget the tone of chapter 9 from the very start. Remember uh, what, what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I, I would give up my salvation. I would go to hell if it would save some. That is his heart. And so he doesn't suddenly shut your mouths for God is the potter and you are nothing but clay. Is that the tone here? I'm going to argue no. But we're going to need to go to the Old Testament and see the fuller context because what oftentimes we lack, they had. So they could hear a portion of something and recognize, ah, that is from Job. Ah, that is from Isaiah. That is from Jeremiah. And so the freight of that would not just be the individual quote, but where it came from and what it meant. And so what Paul actually is doing here is a beautiful display of how to use the Old Testament to argue for God's boundless love. If we read this and we don't see how boundless is the love of God, we have misread it. So... If you would, let's turn back to the text and get oriented. Uh, he says, and remember in, in this section, he's got a number of questions that have come up because of what he said in Romans chapter 8. And he is working through those questions. Some of them he's recognizing. It's actually a bad question. However, I understand that you would ask it. And so he's trying to show them sometimes we place the emphasis upon the wrong syllable. And so uh, he says, you will say to me then, and this is, think about this. You have all asked this question, if you're honest. If God is sovereign and saves whom he wills, 
Why does he still find fault? If we can't resist his will, we're just puppets. What does it even matter? Right? That's kind of the the corner that we paint ourselves into, trying to hang God on the horns of the dilemma. Well, you can't, that's impossible. God is God. And so here, what we're going to see is, Paul's going to show us it's really a bad question. You're starting in the wrong direction. You've got some things kind of out of order here, and you need to reorient yourself. And so he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, if you had to guess which Old Testament book that comes from, which one would you guess? What would you say? Job. Sonia Lightning, Bible scholar. Take her to trivia with you. You're going to win some wings. It's Job. Now, that's an interesting reference. That's got a ton of freight to it, particularly to the Hebrew mind and anybody who, who had any kind of Bible knowledge. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the entire story of Job, but do remember that Job was a righteous man if he did say so himself. And he loved his family, family only, so much that he would sacrifice double just in case those little rascals got out of hand. And his point was to keep God occupied with his commodified religious exchange so that God wouldn't show up and hurt people. That was the point. Because he is holy. right? He's a consuming fire. These are not uh, things that we don't know are true. But that is not all of who God is. That is not only what God is to us. God longs to be with his people. So Job had some stuff wrong that was going to cost him, and this is very important, eternity. So the Lord allows Satan to be who Satan is in this world, awful. And he protects Job, but allows Satan to touch everything else around him. And you remember, Job has some friends that show up, and for a while they're quiet, and then they get get the theologizing, and they're all wrong because they're working off of something called the retribution principle, right? And so, but Job is like, I didn't do anything wrong. How can God find fault with me? Interesting, given that's their question. That is Job's entire question. How can God find fault with me? In fact, I would like it if he would come down and prove it. But here's the problem. If he's in that dock and I'm over here as, as the plaintiff, he's the defendant, who will serve as judge? It's tricky, doesn't it? And so Job goes on and on and on for chapter after chapter after chapter, exhausting every riven, self-serving, self-righteous argument you can find. And then, you remember, God shows up. And remember how God engages him, much like what Paul's doing here. And you can't hear it as if God is, in any way, shape, or form, swatting him instead of calling him to come closer. So he does say to him, Job, where were you at the foundation of the world? Where were you when I was deciding how young goats would be fed? Where were you when I took hold of Leviathan and Behemoth? Where were you exactly that you say you can understand these things so clearly that you know that your righteousness supersedes my purpose? You remember how Job responds? Job repents in dust and ashes, lays his hand over his mouth and says, I have heard of you, but now I have seen you. And I have spoken things too wonderful for me. 
What are those things? He was arguing for his own righteousness. He was arguing that God could not find fault with him or that God was unjust in finding fault with him. And notice what God does. He transforms Job from being a selfish, family-only oriented person who was headed to hell in all of that glorious righteousness to someone who prays for his friends who he had decided were miserable counselors, you remember, and, and is restored what, 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 he would, uh, what was taken away from him twofold. That's how gracious God is. Think about that for a second. Is there a greater blasphemy than someone saying, I am right and God is wrong? Is there? There really isn't, if you think about it. Fundamentally, all blasphemy, heresy boils down to, I am right, God is wrong. So here Paul invokes the story of Job. So you got to figure for this audience, they're like, "Uh uh-oh. All right, here we go. And so then he moves on from there and he says to them, uh, Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? which is a quotation from Isaiah 29, 13 through 21, and then 45, 9 through 13. And then he goes on to quote further from Isaiah 64, and then uh, Jeremiah 18, as he says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, and this is not part of that quotation, but he's, he's saying, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, which is interesting. That's an interesting phrase. If God wanted to show his wrath and make known his power, you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That's a, good, that's a display of wrath and power, is it not? You, you, you flood the earth. That's a display of wrath and power. But this display is different. Listen, much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to show his glory. Now, Now that we've heard that, let's pause for a second, and if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 29. Because I want you to hear this in context so that you you see what he's doing. He's actually uh, uh, piecing together to tell a story about who God is and who we are. And so here, after Job being invoked serves as the overarching aspect to that, Here, he's going to continue to reveal who God is. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the Romans? Sounds like the Roman church. Sounds like us sometimes. We draw near with our lips. We we go through the motions. We showed up for worship, which good praise God. I'm glad you're here. But if your heart is far from the Lord, you, you, you don't receive all that is the beneficence of his presence. He goes on, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So it's traditions and other things. It's not the true fear of the Lord, which the fear of the Lord should actually draw us to God. You always know something is off when the, your fear of the Lord takes you away from him. That is a good indicator that, that you are wrong about something, or somebody has taught you something that is not true or right. He goes on, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, 
with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Uh, that's very important. So he's saying you have an un, he's dealing with an unrepentant people that he's trying to get to understand the depth of his love for them. You, you follow? Now here's the quotation. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Is God to be molded by the will of the people? Is God to be fashioned in our image, or is it the other way around? Well, think of it. If God is to be fashioned in the image of an unrepentant people, right, who are far from him, who are hypocrites, is that good for the world? Is a hypocritical God who doesn't keep his promises, we've already heard, right, Paul's already made it very clear, he's the promise keeper. He is the God of mercy. Now we're going to see he is the God of boundless love. So it goes on. That the thing made should save its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed, is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In, the, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. When does this happen? Or, or better said, when is it inaugurated? Who, what, is, what, what does Jesus say when John is going to die in prison? Actually, he's going to get his head cut off. What does John ask, and then how does Jesus respond? Remember John's question, are you the one? Are you the one so I can, I can die in peace knowing that you've come? And what does Jesus say? Tell John, the deaf hear and the blind see. It is inaugurated. The day of the Lord has come in Christ. And so, here we see, this isn't, this isn't God saying to the, to, as the potter and the clay, hey, you shut up and, and do what you're told. No, he's saying, listen, I made you. I fashioned you carefully with my own hands. Think of the psalm that says he has knit together every portion of us in the womb and ordains all of our days so carefully, so thoughtfully. Why would we not want to hear from the one who has done that, who understands how we are made and how we will best live here and in the not yet? Why would we reject so great a love when this is his promise? He goes on, For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him, who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. So he's saying there will be justice. There, there is a judgment. Take heart. It's not universalism. But this is a God who loves. This is a God who, uh, with, with a hard-headed and stiff-necked people, do you hear the description? The questions they were asking. You make me. You don't understand me. How many of us have said that to God? 
How many of us are saying that to God? I've got good news for you this morning. If that is your heart, if that's where you are, we got, you got good news coming, and it's going to be from the Old Testament, but more importantly, it'll be in Jesus. So if you would now turn to Isaiah 45. So what Paul has done is set the stage and say, look, God is the creator, okay? Now, there's a sense in which we could say, yeah, he created us, but then, then like Job, he turned us loose. And he only checks in when we mess up. He only shows up when we do something wrong, okay? That's sometimes our attitude, and it's kind of been the attitude of the Roman church. Listen at what it says, 45, picking up verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. That's not, a, for those of you who are wondering, is he talking about basketball? No, that's not what that is. Woe to him who says to a father. Now listen at this. Look, listen to how it changes. It's not just, it's not just a commodified thing. This isn't just a, a potter and, and a vessel, which you could easily kind of see in this commodified way. He says, Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? So, so who are we to say to, to, to the loving creator who out of his boundless love has formed us in the first place that he's gotten it wrong? You messed up, God. You, you should not have allowed me to be born into a circumstance where my father will kill himself before I am born and my mother will be a drug addict and overdose someday. You let me walk into a fresh hell such as this. And yet, and yet, having lived long enough, I don't have all the answers for it because it's very mysterious, and yes, it hurt. And it did me damage, and I'm still digging out from underneath of it. I probably will until Christ returns. And yet, the Lord in his fantastic mercy and his boundless love has said to me, if, you'll, if you will trust me, I will take and use all that, and I'll redeem it all. Thousand times over, I'll redeem it all. And that is in process. And many of you have similar stories. He goes on, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? So he's saying, Will you tell me who to save and who to kill? Is it for you to decide who's in and who's out? Because this has been the struggle of the people of God. Do we not struggle with this today, church? Are we not in the process, in some ways, of trying to determine who's in and who's out? Who's too far gone? If someone has transitioned, if someone has declared themselves a certain identity, that person is hell-bound as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm not saying that. But just to be clear, too often that's what the church says. And we will have no conversation with you. We will not weep with you when you weep. We will not come to your mother's funeral. We're not going to pray for you. We lose our mission. Right? The mission is to sinners who don't know and can't know apart from everything we're seeing about predestination election. They can't know unless the Spirit grants them the eyes to see, just as he has done for us who were enemies, dead in our trespasses. That description is not unique. It is universal. 
See, too often we begin as if we're coming into the world neutral, and it's door number one or door number two. No, there's only one door. Everybody is headed to hell apart from the redeeming work of Christ because of our brokenness. Romans chapter 3, which is a quote from two Psalms in the Old Testament of how everyone universally is fallen and cannot save themselves. But by God, we keep trying, don't we? We keep trying to make God love us better than that church up the street. We keep trying to make God uh, impressed with our obedience, pitiful and minimal though it may be. And yet, he says to us, why would you do that? Why are you wasting so much time and energy trying to get what I have freely and boundlessly given to you? It's what he's saying to them here. He says, picking up verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for the price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Again, this is pointing forward to Jesus. So everything that Paul is quoting is pointing forward to Jesus. It is arcing toward and revelatory, so it's important that we see there is grace in the Old Testament. It is filled with grace. Listen, do you hear these words that, that, that are being said? They're not in any way, shape, or form telling these people to shut their mouths. Instead, it is, it is inviting them to the feast. Come and enjoy. Don't stand outside like the older brother and grumble at the prodigals who are inside. You too need Jesus. Come inside. Enjoy. Let's talk of things that will encourage and build up and edify. And so, as Paul goes on, if you would, turn to Isaiah 64. So he's building this case. God is the creator. God is the redeemer. Uh, God is the one uh, who is uh, good, who's to be trusted. Picking up verse 8. But now, O Lord... You are our father. Listen at this. We are the clay. You are the, our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. So what should the fact that God is the potter and we are the clay and that God is the creator and we are the created, that God is the redeemer and we are called to be the redeemed, what should that lead us to? This question, why do you find fault with us? What did we do wrong that you didn't make us do? You may not be the author of sin, but you sure let it into this God-forsaken world, didn't you? Or, should we say, given that that is true, that it is a fallen world and sin uh, is among us and there are principalities and powers of darkness and we contribute uh, oftentimes with a high hand very willingly as, a, as hard-hearted Pharaoh did, right? If you think that a man who thought himself God was going to relent whether God intervened or not, you're crazy. For him to actually bow to God would be to destroy his status and lose everything he had like the rich young ruler, who also refused. 
So what Paul is arguing toward here is don't refuse the call to repentance because, as Robbie so beautifully displayed last week, God is merciful. And he loves you and he is good. It was interesting reading Jonah this morning in light of this. You know the story of Jonah? He is called to go and, and uh, preach to the Ninevites. Get it together in three days, you're all going to die. And he walked around the whole city doing that, saying that, right? Well, why wouldn't he want to go and do that? He hates the Ninevites. See, there's a problem. And it's what he says about God that is fascinating. So he goes and he preaches this sermon after he has tried to get away from God and he gets swallowed by a fish. And he does actually say, hey, salvation belongs to Yahweh alone, to God alone. And he gets there and he preaches this sermon that I, I wouldn't have thought would have gotten very far. And the entire joint converts. In fact, they say this in an act of humility, which I have never heard any of us say. I've never said it. Maybe you have, and I just ain't heard you. They say, hey, we're going to repent. We're, we're going to obey this Yahweh. Maybe he'll save us. What? How many of you would submit not knowing exactly how it was going to work out? How many of you are willing to do that kind of stuff? You're not. How many of you, when a doctor gives you advice that's life or death, you're like, nah, I'm going to keep drinking Dr. Pepper and eating cheese puffs. My granny lived to be 112, and I think that's what she did. Right? We ignore it because, again, we're not going to submit to something if we're not sure of the outcome oftentimes, right? But the Ninevites, they didn't know if, well, think about it, if you're going to die anyway, why not eat, drink, and be merry? What wondrous love is this that moved these people to in what they thought were more than likely their final days to submit to a God they had never known? In fact, they had killed and had skulls, uh, pyramids built out of skulls of his people. Can you imagine? And you remember how Jonah responded. And he wasn't exactly sure how God was going to respond because remember he sat outside the city because he wanted to see if it was going to burn. He didn't sit out there to watch them be obedient and submit and hold uh, right, right worship. He sat there because he knew. He's like, ah, they can't, keep it. they can't keep up this energy. I know my own people can't keep up that energy. No way the Ninevites can. They're going to burn. And yet he gets into an argument with God, if you remember. He says, this is the whole reason I didn't even want to come here. Because I knew what you were. You remember what he quotes? Something you ought to be able to quote if I were to call you and wake you up at 3 in the morning. Which I'll never do because I'm not up at that time. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I knew you were steadfast in love and forgiving. I knew it. And I knew if I came here and I preached your word that they would be moved. And that is not what I want for them. And remember what God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? You remember Jonah sitting up there, he's stewing, he's mad, he made him a little, a little lean-to, and God gives him this gourd that gives him some shade, and he's like, man, this is great. I get to watch in the shade the city burn. Next day, God fashions a worm, sends the worm, kills the gourd. Jonah's back to cursing folks. East wind's blowing in on him. Not like here, but, well, maybe like here. That's probably like that fan's just blowing hot. It's like a convection oven on these sides of the room. And he's mad, and God says to him, oh, let me see if I get this straight. 
You are uh, uh, more concerned about the status of a gourd that you didn't make. And yet you want me to not care. The, the, the language is fascinating. He says, you want me to not care about those that I have created that don't know their right hand from their left. These horrible sinners who built pyramids out of the skulls of God's very own people. Deserving of judgment? If there ever was a people in history deserving of judgment, I think we would say. And yet he chooses to bring some into the kingdom, recognizing there's no way for them to repent unless he intervenes. And Jonah knew that. How many of us are a lot like Jonah? We don't want some of those kind of people showing up in here because you go sharing the gospel and folks could actually change and all of a sudden we got a mess up in here. People who don't understand the, the five points of Calvinism, don't even know what tulip means and all this stuff, and, and they're going to water us down. They don't know how to sing the right songs in the right way and, and it's just going to be chaos. Is that... Is that the mission of the church? No. Who are we, the clay, who's been fashioned in to a vessel for God's glory, for God's purpose? Who are we to tell him who he should love and whom he shouldn't? Knowing who we are apart from him. Knowing who everyone is apart from him. That's the starting point. And so this glorious God is not telling us to shut up. He's saying, come closer and be forgiven because I love you. Now, let's look at Jeremiah 18. We're getting close to done. I know you guys are frying. I'm up here. I'm losing weight, and it's great. <laughs> now, here, here it's so beautiful what, what, what Paul has stitched together. He says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, hear this, I will relent. In its disaster. Or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's, he set the plumb line. He's saying, nothing is, you can't just be, and think of how the, the Jews were wrestling with this. And Paul said, look, I know you have the covenant. I know you have Abraham. I know you have all of these things. But do remember that those who have Abraham are not of Abraham by birth. They're by spirit. And so what he's saying here is just because I have bestowed my love upon you doesn't mean that you can go act any way you want. Right? That's just fair. And but because there's a nation that, that maybe hasn't known me doesn't mean that I want it won't, if they repent, forgive them. It's kind of that parable of uh, the vineyard workers. These other nations are the people who show up late and get paid the same. This is how God's people should respond to that truth. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. That doesn't sound too good. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. 
What did he just say? My mercy is more. My love is boundless. Yes, you deserve to be plucked up and destroyed. I have given you everything that a people should have to know that they're blessed and to know that they're loved and you have rejected it all. And it would be perfectly just for me to immediately destroy you. But I'm not. I am the potter. You are the precious clay to me. Even though you may be some for honorable and some for dishonorable use. Now, it's important that we understand that language. A dishonorable use would essentially be uh, kind of a toilet, right? Are toilets important to the household? Does any of us want to be the toilet in any given household? Well, not necessarily, but it serves a particular function. And it may be for a season. But it is for God to determine who's the hand, who's the foot, and who's the belly button, and who's the armpit. But all is for his glory, and all will be granted the same glory in Christ. And notice when he gets into that discussion about vessels for wrath. So how the Jews would be hearing that is they'd be going, oh, you're talking about the Gentiles. But see, then he flips it on and he's like, no, I'm talking about you. In fact, he's going to go on in, in chapters 10 and 11 to say that it is still his desire that Jews would be redeemed. He's not given up on his people at all. And remember that there is a vessel of God's wrath. Who? Got to be one Christian in this room. Law of averages, we're in the South. Who is the vessel of God's wrath? Jesus. Did you know that? He is the vessel of God's wrath for all who will be redeemed. Remember, he on the cross received the fullness of the judgment of God, was satisfied for all of the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. He took the fullness of that wrath so that we would never again have to be concerned about it and could come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what we need in a time of trouble and, as Paul has already told us in Romans 5, to stand before God in grace restored. Amen? That was weak, but y'all, it's okay. Y'all hot. I get it. See, this is what Paul is arcing them toward. And if all of that weren't enough, he goes to Hosea. And he talks about how once there was a group that was not his people. They're now his people. There's there's all this redemption and the boundlessness of God's love being displayed through all of this. That is Paul's point in saying what he's saying about the potter and the clay. We miss that if, if we hear the tone change. Now, is it true that what God says we cannot contradict? Is that true? Yeah. But is he... So angry a father that he's constantly telling us, his children, to shut up. No. Remember, Jesus died so that you could go boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need. To babble if you need to. To talk in a way that you understand is but babble to the creator of the universe, but he loves to hear it. Just as we do with our own children and should with each other. And so, so how... Beautiful a picture he has painted using these texts from the Old Testament. Next week he's going to use uh, further texts from Isaiah to basically further display the boundlessness of his love. He says, basically, look, if God hadn't intervened, we would all become like Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the fate of all. 
Praise God, he has stepped in. Now, if you're concerned about who God might save, right? Like you, you have genuine concerns. Well, notice Jonah. Share the gospel. Be hospitable in the gospel. If you're concerned about whether or not the Lord is after someone, notice that he tarries, according to 2 Peter 3, so the family can get bigger. So we must be at work. We can't just maintain. The church is not, this isn't a museum. We are not keeping artifacts for someone to dig up and find and be confused by. We are here to be the living witness of the Lord our God and to give that away to each generation. And to, if you're concerned about uh, the, the, the nature of sexuality in our culture, share your fear. If you are concerned about the political condition of any number of things, the supply chain, or whatever else, share the gospel. Share it with truckers, so maybe they'll bring our stuff, right? Our Pelotons and our other things that we need so desperately. Share it with whomever it is, if that's your concern. And, and before you share, humble yourself in prayer. Begin to pray, Lord, would you open up opportunities for me to share with people I don't understand and frankly I don't like? Or I'm scared of. Be honest. The Lord can handle it. He is the potter. He made you. He knows what's best for you. Trust him. Go to him. He is not pushing you away. He is calling you near. So let me ask you, do you trust God in the various ways in which he brings about redemption in Christ alone according to his boundless love alone? Do you trust him? Do you trust that what he is doing is somehow wiser than what you could come up with? I am not who I am. If the Lord, like Susan, had made me know him all of his days, all of my days, like he did her, she would not be who she is had she not known, right? Both of us, very different circumstances in coming into the kingdom, both beneficial in very different ways, right? And what a gift that is. And I'm not a Lone Ranger, and she's not a Lone Ranger. We work together in that, and that goes myriad throughout this room, right? How many of us have so many different stories that resonate in different contexts? Uh, remember one time, I'll tell the story quickly because I'm, I'm being notorious. I've been away for a while. I've missed y'all. I want to spend some time with you. How about that? Uh, there was a young lady who came in, and she had been in a bad car accident, and she had been abused by every male in her life, six or seven of them, including family and not family, uh, uh, from very early on. So we're not talking about some sort of Lolita-type situation. She was five, and it lasted into her teens. She came in and she said, I'm mad at God. I don't think I would be too. And I didn't know what to say, right? What do you say to that? What, what am I going to say to her? Well, you know, who are you, the, the, the clay, to say to the potter? Would you think that would have gone well? Would that have been good counsel? Would you be proud of me for doing that? I'm quoting scripture. God works all things together for the good of his people. He does. All that's true. And I started praying real fast. I said, Lord, this is sacred and dangerous and fragile ground. I don't want to harm her one whit further. But she knows I'm going to seminary, and she knows I'm at the rescue mission, so she has said this to me for some reason. So as your representative, I got nothing. So if you kindly would grant me something, I'll give it to her. And some of you may be uncomfortable with that kind of praying. Well, I'm not. 
And the, the Spirit spoke. And I said this to her. I said, listen, I have no earthly idea why the Lord didn't send a legion of angels with swords in their fists and slaughter every single one of those men the moment they had the thought to lay a hand on you. I don't. But here's what I do know. I know you have not made it this far by yourself. There have been a litany of people and things the Lord has provided along the way to make you as healthy as you are to be in the position where you could tell him you're mad at him. And I know that your voice in a room full of people, unfortunately, there are too many of them in this world. But I could walk into a room full of abused people and say something, and you could walk in and say something. They're listening to you, not me. So if you're willing to offer up your broken cup, the Lord will use it and redeem this. And she went, huh, she left. I was pretty sure I was never going to see her again, right? Showed up for her next appointment, and she came in, and she said, I ain't mad at God no more. And you are going to be a really weird pastor. Good luck. <laughs> are we willing to offer up our broken cup because of the way in which the potter has fashioned our lives because we know he is good and we know that his love is boundless? I want to close with this. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. It's a glorious prayer, especially in light of what we've heard. So this will serve as a closing prayer. You're going to get two for one. Get us out of here just a skosh faster. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. Did you hear that? And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, and all God's people can't help but say, Amen.